0: That you supply every need. That we can bring every burden and lay them down at your feet. That we don't have to worry about tomorrow. You take care of the birds. How much more will you take care of us? Lord, we look to you. The author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Be seated. You know, if you listen to some preachers and some folks on television, you would believe that if you trust God, you won't have any problems. There won't be any issues to deal with. You'll be healthy and wealthy and wise and... Yeah, when I read the Bible, there are no Teflon saints in Scripture. In in fact, if the devil is not bothering you, it's because you're not bothering him. I heard a preacher say a long time ago that if uh, the devil's not bothering you, it's because you're walking in the same direction he is. Because if you're walking against the tide and if you're walking in the truth, then you are going to be bothered by the enemy. He's going to do everything he can to defeat you. I want us to look at a pretty healthy section of uh, Acts chapter 4 tonight, verses 12 through 37. Let's go back to what we talked about the, the last time, and that is Peter and John have been arrested they had every right to believe that they were going to suffer the same fate as their master they'd been called before the Sanhedrin. But they don't back off of their testimony. This is a difference that the Holy Spirit of God has made in these men. They've gone from being afraid and cowards and deniers to bold witnesses for Christ. And obviously this message threatened the religious establishment. It drove them crazy. They didn't know what to do with these men. And in verse 12, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. End of discussion. Close the book. There's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Can I make a suggestion to you? that if just one suicide bomber came back and told people where he ended up for his faith, we'd end a world religion today. I'm worried. I'm not worried because I, I think it's typical. But yesterday, the Pope said he hopes that the war with Iraq Will not, now quote, this is the quote, divide world religions. End of quote. Now there's only one way to view that statement, and that's heresy. The Pope spoke heresy when he made that statement. Because world religions are divided, Jesus is on one side. And every other religion is on the other side. There is no other name. Not Mohammed. Nobody's going to stand before God and say, I was sincere. I memorized the Koran. I did everything I was supposed to do. Everything my religion taught me to do. And God will say, I don't know you. You're condemned to hell. The Mormons will stand up and say, but I read the book that was translated from gold tablets. And God will say, you're not a part of me. There is no other name, period. The problem is we have Christians and the leader of a supposedly Christian church who says and is believed because what comes from his mouth is seen to be a holy edict that he hopes that this does not divide the world religions. Listen, folks, this is... Not a religious war. This is a war between the cause of Christ, the spiritual battle that goes on around. Between the cause of Christ and Satan who is an imitator with false religions. Who appears as an angel of light. Who deceives many. Now, we're not in a holy war. There are people that are trying to make that a holy war. But I want to tell you this. Jesus Christ divides world religions. And if He doesn't, then we need to quit meeting. And we need to quit coming to church. And we need to quit printing Bibles because what we say is not the truth. And we need to take our Sundays and go to the lake and fish. Because what we're saying and what we believe and what we're investing in and what we're giving ourselves to really doesn't matter if it's no different from everything else. It's a false religion. But I believe the Word of God teaches me that Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. He does divide. And the first thing I want you to see in this long passage is the reaction of this religious crowd in verses 13 through 22. Now the Sanhedrin, they prided themselves in their religion. They were the keepers of the keys of tradition. They have ancestors in our churches today. Their motto is, we've never done it that way before. Their slogan is, as long as I'm a member of this church, there will be no unanimous vote. They were the keepers of tradition and of religion and of law. And by the way, this is just a side note. One of the reasons that I think that the Muslim faith and other faiths grow so much is because people are attracted to structured legalism. When their lives are unstructured, they are not attracted to the spirit that sets us free. They're just attracted to another form of bondage. Because religion is bondage. Jesus did not come to give religion. He came to establish a relationship. And religion is a bondage. The Jewish people of this time were in bondage. They were self-deceived. I, I, this year and, and last year, I've done a number of just one-night and two-night uh, things in churches. And, and, and I've got to tell you, there are a lot of churches with a lot of religion. I mean a lot of religion. They'll take hours to discuss what it would take minutes to decide. They've got people that'd rather have a board meeting than a prayer meeting. They they have folks that are just so consumed with committees, but if you ever ask them to take a name and go to talk to somebody about Jesus, they don't feel that that's their gift. And they are eaten up with religion because they would rather organize religion than to agonize over the condition of their community. And I am amazed at how much religion there is in our churches. Churches that Jesus died for. Churches that Jesus wants to empower and equip. And when I talk to the pastors in these churches and when I listen to their staff and they are just bogged down like they're carrying a ball and chain around their ankle dealing with religious people. But not people that are helping them reach the community, not people that are helping them grow a church, not people that are helping them teach and minister, but just people that want religion on their terms. And they are overrun by these people and they're dominated and they live in fear of them. What I've said to those guys, brother, the worst thing they can do to you is fire you and you know it's sometimes good to be known by who fired you. Because these religious people will put out a fire as quick as anything. Listen folks, Either the minority which have a heart for God take a church and put it on fire for God or the majority will put that fire out. It's just who's going to believe God the most and who's going to be the most resistant and who's going to stand the strongest. Well, these Sanhedrin, boy, they were, they were tough. I mean, they wanted to debate and argue. They didn't want to believe anything. Have you noticed that Jesus saved His most... Harsh statements for religious people. He did not blast Pontius Pilate. He didn't rip into King Herod. But I want to tell you something. When he got a hold of a religious crowd, he didn't pull any punches. He was like a surgeon without anesthesia. I mean, he cut to the core. Somebody came to one time... Uh, to uh, Dr. Havner and said, Dr. Havner, you preach so hard. Why don't you tell us something the meek and lowly Jesus said? He said, I'll tell you what the meek and lowly Jesus said. He said, you're of your father the devil. You're a whitewashed tomb. The meek and lowly Jesus preached more on hell than anybody in the Bible. You see, Jesus understood that religion was in direct contrast to everything God came to do for man that religion would kill the spirit of man, that man would become in bondage to rules and to regulations and to laws and to structures, and he would not be free to enjoy a loving relationship with his heavenly Father. And so he resisted it. By the way, it was religious people that put him on the cross. Pilate was ready to let him go. It was the religious people that demanded his crucifixion. Now, look at several things. First of all, they recognize the authority within Peter and John. Verse 13, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now, we've talked about this word uneducated and untrained a little bit, but the word really is from the same root that we get the word idiot. Idiot. They thought they were idiots. They thought they were unschooled. They hadn't been to the rabbinical school. They they didn't have the training associated with the rabbis. And they were amazed at them. These untrained, common men, just like Jesus was a common carpenter, and yet they were acting and teaching and reacting, just like Jesus did when they put Jesus under pressure. They weren't shaken by it. They had the same confidence, they had the same power, they had the same authority, and they were amazed, and they began to recognize this in them. I want to give you a little lesson. Pulpit committees will oftentimes call me and ask me if there's anybody I can recommend. I had a letter from a a church uh, in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote them a letter and recommended a couple of people to them. And they'll always tell you what they're looking for. Where we're looking for a man who's this age and who has this characteristics and we'd like him to have a a master's of divinity, we would prefer some. I always love it when churches that run 100 want somebody with a Ph.D. And in fact, their salary package is a FUD, just like the Ph.D. sounds. You know, they want all these things. You know, he's got to be good. His wife needs to play the piano. Uh, You know, he... He's got to have all these. He's got to be good with people. He's got to be at the hospital 12 hours a day. He needs to study 15 hours a day. He needs to pray five hours a day. Uh, He needs to visit the sick and the homebound 10 hours a day. Uh, He needs to do this. And they got all these requirements. You know, I've never gotten a letter from a pulpit committee, and I've gotten dozens and dozens, if not hundreds. I have never gotten a letter from a pulpit committee to ask me to recommend anybody that has made this statement. Do you recognize anyone who has been with Jesus? Wouldn't that seem to be the qualification you would want? Not what school he went to. Not what degrees are hanging on his wall. But can you tell that he has been with Jesus? And these men were uneducated, but I want to tell you, they did a great job. By the way, some of the greatest servants God ever had were uneducated men by the world's standards. Charles Spurgeon never went to college. Every book he ever wrote is still in print today. He's considered the greatest preacher in the history of Christendom. He never went to college. Vance Havner dropped out after his freshman year in college. D.L. Moody had a sixth grade education. By the time of D.L. Moody's death, 100,000 people had come to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Well, just think if he'd have gotten a degree. A.W. Tozer, one of the great hardline prophets of the 20th century, didn't have a seminary degree. G. Campbell Morgan, who is considered the prince of preachers, one of the great expositors, died in the 1940s, Lehman Strauss, had the privilege of preaching with him one time. G. Campbell Morgan never finished his education, but they had two things in common, every one of them. They were humble and they had a hunger for God. You give me somebody who's humble and has a hunger for God, and I'll take that over somebody who is so educated that they can't be humble and they don't have that childlike appetite for the things of God. Alexander McLaren said, A soul habitually in contact with Jesus will absorb sweetness from Him, just as garments laid in a drawer with some perfume absorb fragrance from that which beside they lie. Secondly, they couldn't ignore the healing. They were amazed. The word means astonished or in awe. They were were blown away, verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They couldn't deny the miracle and they couldn't ignore the man. They were amazed. They were blown away just about the time they think, okay, we're going to bring these guys in and we're going to stop this right now. Here's a lame man. They had passed the same lame man. They had walked by him too. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any authority. They had never had the ability to raise this man. And yet, Simon Peter, unlearned, uneducated, says, In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he gets up and he walks. And there he's standing there. Now, how are you going to deny that? You can't deny that. You can't refute it. You can't argue with it. Here's living proof of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that in that name, by the way... They would never mention the name of Jesus. They just kept saying, quit preaching in this name. We'll talk about that in in a few weeks. Thirdly, they acknowledged that something supernatural had taken place. But I want you to notice they didn't acknowledge this to Peter and John. Verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. This is what is called the meeting after the meeting. They began to confer with one another. Now, you've been in churches like that, haven't you? where the meeting's over and then you see a little group over in the corner and you know they're up to no good. <laughs> you know, these, this is not the discussion of godly people. You know, they're up to no good. And, they're, you know, and I've been in churches where I love these meetings. You know, you, you go and you have the meeting and somebody doesn't like what's going on. Then they have the meeting after the meeting and they're all standing around smoking cigarettes criticizing the preacher. That's always a hilarious meeting to me. You know, men full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. And so they conferred among themselves. And in verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle... Now notice, they acknowledge the fact that there's been a miracle. A noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now folks, listen. Just because you have a miracle doesn't mean people are going to start believing. Just because there's something supernatural that God does does not mean that the lost will rush to the doors because this miracle was seen as a threat to the status quo. Religious people, by the way, hate miracles because they can't control them. Religious people don't want God to do the supernatural because it gets outside of their box. Verse 17, But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. See, they won't, they won't mention the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them back in, they commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. Now here were people who knew that God had worked in miracles in the past. They were teachers who had taught the parting of the water at the Red Sea. They had seen the pillar of fire and cloud and their ancestors had seen that. They taught that. The axe head that swam, the sun standing still, the fire on Mount Carmel. They knew that their God was a miracle-working God. But now remember, between Malachi and Matthew, there's a 400-year gap between those two books and their silence. God has not spoken. God has not performed a miracle until Jesus shows up. For 400 years, there's been nothing. These men have had no miracles. They've had no sign of power. They've had no sign of authority. They've had no sign of blessings from God. And now when the blessings show up and when the power shows up, they want to stop it. Ray Steadman says, as long as the gospel is being proclaimed largely to Jews, there was an appearance of signs and wonders and miracles, because these people, throughout their history, had been dealt with by God in this manner. Now we would think that after having seen this miracle, and obviously knowing about, and some of them having seen the miracles of Jesus, that seeing the miracles and seeing the change in the disciples and seeing 3,000 believe that somebody in this group who had memorized the first five books of the Bible would have said, you know what, this may be Messiah. Maybe we ought to get on board. But they denied it and they refuted it and they tried to stop it. Here were miracles in their midst. Here was the master's men in their midst, and yet they were ignoring it and trying to stop it. Why? Because to admit that Peter was right in what he was saying would have been to admit that they had crucified Messiah. And they pride, their pride could not let them admit That what Peter was saying was true, what was happening was real, and that they had in fact done what Simon Peter had said, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Him both Lord and Christ. And to admit that He was right, they would have to swallow their pride, renounce their callings, get off of their high horses, and humble themselves before a holy God, and they weren't willing to do that. By the way, pride is what keeps most people out of heaven. Pride is what keeps religious people from being saved. Pride is what keeps lost church members from being saved. Because we end up wondering, what will people think about me? Folks, I want to tell you, it's a sad thing to think that some people end up in hell because of pride. Because they will not swallow their pride and admit that they're sinners. Now, there's a response of Peter and John in verses 19 through 23. Now, remember he had talked about in the earlier verses the stone which the builders rejected, the the Messiah, the cornerstone, the anointed one. And he says, there's no other name by which man can be saved. By the way, saved is still a good word. I I know it's not politically correct, and I know we want to add some other word, but... Lost and saved is still a good word. It still tells us where we are. You're either saved or you're not. And there's no other name under heaven given. It's this way or or no other way. Now, if you'll write by verses 19 through 23, Mark chapter 13 and verse 11, because what Peter and John are doing is they're standing firm because they remember what Jesus said that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13 and verse 11. Let me read it for you. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Peter and John are saying, you know, God told us there are going to be times like this. They're going to arrest us. They're going to hand us over. There are going to be moments like this and we're not going to have our commentary, and we're not going to have Dr. Wearsby's books, and we're not going to have our Bible, and we're not going to have a video, and we're going to have left our tracks at home. What are we going to say? Jesus said, you don't worry about what you say. I'll tell you what to say in that moment. I will give you the words to say through the Holy Spirit. And all God is doing is fulfilling His promise to them. And so look at what they say in verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. H.G. Wells says the trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbors sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. It is said of John Knox that he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. I think I've told you this story before, but John Knox was enslaved for a number of years is the leader of the Protestant Reformation. And Knox was a tough dude, boy, I'm telling you what. I, I wouldn't have want, wanted to go toe-to-toe with him. Now, I've been to the house where he lived. I've walked the royal mile where he walked and confronted uh, Mary, Queen of Scots. I, I, and, and I'm going to tell you what, his, his, there, there's still a sense that John Knox has been dead for hundreds of years, but you wouldn't want to mess with him. And he was enslaved and put on a slave ship, and he was an under rower on a slave ship. And they brought a statue of the Virgin Mary onto that slave ship for people to worship. And they put it before John Knox, and they said, John Knox, worship this. What do you think about this? And Knox grabbed it out of their hands. He's in the middle of the ocean, He grabbed it out of their hands and threw it into the ocean and said, if she's God's mother, then let her swim. You and I understand that there is a time when you cannot live with the fear of men. Secondly, Not only living in the fear of men, which causes people problems, but people who will not compromise. These were people who wouldn't compromise no matter what the consequences. Look, they they were living under command. Uh, Count Zinzendorf, the founder of the Moravians, said, I have one passion only. It is he. It is he. Now, I I find this very interesting. Peter and John did not go out and do a die-in on the streets of New York. Uh, they, they didn't go out and order a political agenda, get permission to march, assemble a rebellion, make a peaceful protest. They didn't go to Kinko's and get signs printed down with the Sanhedrin. And yet, the reason they were let go is because they, the Sanhedrin were afraid of the people. What a time to capitalize and take over. What a time for a coup. What a time to take your position and take some ground. But they didn't do that. The Sanhedrin had let them go because they were afraid that the people were going to kill them. But Peter and John did not try to change the power structure. They didn't waste time on secondary messages. They had one message, the gospel. And they didn't want to slow down for another message. They had one word to get out. They didn't know when their lives would be over. They didn't know what would happen, but they knew this. They'd been called to preach the gospel. And so they came and preached. And I want to tell you something, folks. Public opinion has killed more prophets than bricks and mortar. I've watched way too many preachers lose their ministries because they worried about what people thought about what they said or they got off on secondary things and quit focusing on the main thing. You see, religion will be respectable and it will say things that get a nod of agreement from people, but Christianity is alive and it's confrontive. And you can't stay the way you were if you're walking with God. You have to move on in your walking in relationship with Him. Now look at the third thing. The results of the persecution, verse 24. Verse 24. Let's start in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God in one accord and said, O Lord, it is You who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now they did two things here. As a result of this persecution, as a result of this warning, the first thing they did is they turned their hearts to God in prayer. They went to prayer. They didn't walk out and try to call the news media and say, we need to talk about our, our rights have been violated. We've been treated unfairly. They didn't call one of these 1-800-LAWYER numbers that puts everybody in fear. <gasps> it's him? Oh, let's settle out of court. <laughs> Please. They went to prayer. By the way, when you're persecuted and when you're under stress and when you're under pressure, that's the first thing you ought to do. Prayer should not be our last resort. It should be our first option. And they went to prayer. Now, I have never seen a church or a Christian that you had to stop and say, you know what, you're just praying too much. Have you? I mean, I've never met a Christian who says, you know, I don't know what to do with him. They just pray too much. Now, I know a lot of churches and a lot of Christians that need to pray more. But I don't know that God would accuse any of us of praying too much. And they went to God in prayer... And they prayed and they faced the opposition and they dealt with all these power groups and they dealt with religion. Why? In a prayer environment, they were able to stand up to their opposition. You know why churches get in trouble? Because the last thing they think about doing is praying. You've heard the story about the church that was having all kind of trouble and They were just, people were standing up and fighting and fussing back and forth and back and forth and arguing back and forth. And somebody stood up and said, Pastor, I think it's time for us to pray. And a lady stood up back and said, Oh, no, it hasn't come to that, has it? How do you deal with pressure within and without? By prayer. How do you have power to meet the opposition? By prayer. Now I want you to see the word that Peter uses here in verse twenty-four. Oh Lord! Now that's not the typical word "curios" for Lord. That's a different word. It's the word "despot," dictator. Peter says, "Lord, dictator, absolute sovereign ruler. Nobody can question." Nobody can challenge you. Nobody has a higher authority. There is no other court of appeal. You're at the top. You make all the decisions. Oh, Lord, we're coming before you, the God who has the last word. Now, here's a great thought. God, you're sovereign Lord. You're the ruler. You're the creator. You're in charge of all. You know all. You see all. You control all. Lord, you're the creator. Uh, Lord, we're having some problems with some of these people you created. That's why they use that word. Lord, you're the creator. You created all of this. You created this circumstance. You allowed it. And we just want to tell you we're having a few problems with some of these folks that you've created. Just wanted to bring them to your attention. You know, the one thing you can do without gossiping is you can tell tell on people to God. And you're not gossiping, you're praying. You're talking to God about it. Now, Lord, look at these people. Look at what they're... Lord, can you believe this? You know, and the Lord will either change you or He'll change them. Now, you start going to to everybody else, you're going to start gossiping. And then you're going to start exaggerating. And then you're going to have to come to the altar and confess it. But when you pray and you talk to God, which is what they did, they turned their hearts to God in prayer. But notice the second thing they did. They tied in Scripture. And they're praying. What they're doing here, beginning in verse 25 and 26, they are quoting the second psalm. They remember this scripture. They had read it, and it came to mind, and they began praying scripture, verse 25, "...who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things?" The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever, now notice how they describe it, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur." They look back on Psalm 2 and say, hmm, you know, this kind of reminds me of Psalm 2. And so, Lord, you know what Psalm 2 says. Let's just remind you what you said in your word. And notice they say to do whatever your hand and your... Well, I thought that the Jews did it. No. God orchestrated that. Because there had to be a worthy sacrifice. There had to be a sinless sacrifice. And it was in the predetermined... Plan and counsel of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together and said there's only one way that man's ever going to be saved. It has to be through a blood sacrifice. And animals aren't going to do it. There has to be a once for all sacrifice. And God the Son said to God the Father, I'll go, and God the Holy Spirit said, when He gets through, I'll follow it up, and I'll take up where He left off. And they looked at each other and said, that's a good plan. That was before you ever sinned. That was before Adam and Eve ever sinned. God knowing all things, God being the creator of all things, God being sovereign of all things, knew what man was going to do when given the free choice to do it. He would rebel. We think if God set it up all over again, we wouldn't do that. We'd do the same thing. And so they prayed Scripture. And what they're praying is, God, you rule and you overrule. You can even take a cross and turn it to your glory. You can take what appears to us to be the worst day of our lives and turn it to a day that we praise you for. And isn't that what we do when we celebrate Easter? We praise God that He took the worst thing man could ever do and God turned it to our salvation. Just like Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. They meant to stop Jesus, and all they did was start an explosion of growth. Of people who came to believe the message. Now, I want you to write down, it won't read this way in your translation, but I want you to write down Job chapter 12, verse 10 through verse 21, and I want to read some verses. This This is a great passage. I'm reading it out of today's English Bible. Job 10. Job chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 10, and then I'll skip to verse 14. By the way, when I was working on this yesterday, I told Terry, I said, you know, this is a good prayer to pray for the war and for our soldiers and for our president. It's an excellent, excellent prayer to pray. If you don't know what to pray and how to pray for our leaders right now, this is a good prayer to pray. Job 12 and verse 10, it is God who directs the lives of His creatures Every man's life is in his power. Verse 14. When God tears down, who can rebuild and who can free the man God imprisons? Drought comes when God withholds rain. Floods come when He turns water loose. God is strong and always victorious. Both deceived and deceiver are in His power. He takes away the wisdom of rulers and makes leaders act like fools. He dethrones kings and makes them prisoners. He humbles priests and men of power. He silences men who are trusted and takes the wisdom of old men away. He disgraces those in power and puts an end to the strength of rulers. He sends light to places dark as death. All that is saying is, is that, listen, man may think he can do whatever he wants to do, but God's going to get the final word. Nobody's going to trump God. Nobody's going to go to a higher court of appeal. God never says, I don't know. I didn't know. You've got to be kidding or oops. Nothing surprises God. Nothing moves in this world that God does not know about it. No one rises to power that God does not know, and God can destroy those who rise to power. He's sovereign. And so they pray, and they say, Lord, your hand and your purpose, predestined, predetermined, have occurred. Verse 29, Now, Lord... Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants can find a new church to go to where there are not as many problems. is that what it says? And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus." Three times, verse 13, verse 29, and verse 31, you find the word boldness or confidence. They're asking God to give them more of what got them in trouble. They were uneducated, unlearned men. I mean, we're so sophisticated now, you know, that if we get in trouble, we dive in a hole. We run for cover. We hide in the tall grass. I mean, we, we go for the bushes. We, you know, pastors especially, I mean, the first bad meeting they ever go to, they start sitting out it, oh, you got to pray for me. I need a church that's more open to Jesus. These guys stayed right in the middle of a terrible situation with religious people and said, God, give us more. We're ready to walk through the fire. We're ready to take whatever comes. It was the answer to prayer, the answer to persecution, the answer to power, was God, give us more of this. Some of us are like John, the son of thunder. You know, we just want to call down fire on those people. That's not what these disciples did. They called for the fire of God to come on them so that they would continually be bold in sharing their faith. They were bold in their belief and they were bold in their behavior. They weren't just bold when they were in their holy huddles. But there was a sense of urgency in them. If the heat is coming on, if the persecution is coming, then we need to be bold enough. We have to stand against it. By the way, we are in the minority as believers, and we have to be more aggressive than those who are against us because we're going uphill. And when you stand against aggressive forces, you have to be more aggressive than those forces if you want to win the day. And that's what they're praying for. Lord, just give us more of this. We're, we're going through a battle. We're going through a crisis. We need more of what you've got for us. Extend your hand. Do more miracles. Do more wonders. Give us more confidence. Give us more boldness. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we quit the ministry. It's not what Paul said. Paul said, after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And they prayed, and all were filled, and the place was shaken. When we seek the Lord, and when we seek His glory, and when we seek His power, things will start shaking. But they never shake when a church wants to do business as usual. They never shake if we want to stay in our comfort zone. They never shake if we just don't want to offend anybody. Because the gospel is offensive. And when you're confronted with the gospel, you have to choose to accept or reject. There's no middle ground. You don't straddle the fence and walk the narrow road at the same time. And they sought this power. They sought this presence in the midst of opposition. Ron Dunn used to say that he doubted seriously that God would ever send persecution to America because we are not the stuff of which martyrs are made. He may be right. I don't know if American Christianity is the stuff of which martyrs are made. I don't know one believer. that when faced with the choice of confessing Jesus or denying Him, and if you confess Him, they'll cut your tongue out, would boldly say, cut it out. Because you see, we want our cake and we want to eat it too. We want our touchy-feely religion. And we don't want to pay the price That today, today, somewhere between 50 and 75,000 people in this world will pay with their lives for the gospel, for sharing their faith, for forsaking their religion, for standing and proclaiming. They will die today as soldiers in the army of God. And I don't see within the walls of the church of this country that kind of faith. I don't see it in our pulpits. I don't see it in the way we go about our business. I'm afraid that we have developed the mindset, if you'll leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And there is nothing in the book of Acts that tells me we can be that way and call ourselves Christians. Job said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Folks, one day we're all going to stand before Jesus. And in standing before Jesus, we're either going to say, Lord, I ask you to make me bold. I ask you to give me confidence. I ask you to give me power to live my life in such a way that I could proclaim you without apology. Or Lord, I look for every opportunity I could to not say anything. Because I didn't want people to make fun of me. I didn't want people to laugh at me. I didn't want to be a fanatic. I didn't want to be considered weird. I didn't want to be considered crazy. I I didn't want to do something that would cause people to not like me. A number of years ago in Red China, there were three rules about religion. I'm trying to remember these because I haven't used this illustration in about 10 years. But You could not organize a religious meeting. You could not meet with the same people at the same time. If I remember right, the third one was you could not meet in the same place at the same time. So you couldn't organize a religious meeting. You couldn't meet with the same people at the same time and you could not meet at the same place twice. And so for the church to gather in China, by the way, the church in China is growing faster than the church in America. For the church in China to meet, they would have to have a messenger within that church and that person would be designated at each meeting. And then they would stand in a common place and they would be the contact person usually in the marketplace, and they would have some identifying mark put on them that was determined in that meeting they'd wear a certain color of clothes, they would wear a band around their wrists, some way that they could be identified. And they would stand in the marketplace, and if we were all meeting, then we would have to vote on a person tonight who would be our contact. So sometime between now and next Sunday, let's say they were in downtown Albany standing on the corner by the courthouse, So we would go to the corner of the courthouse and find out where we're supposed to meet this next week because we could never meet here again. And you could never meet with this same group again, otherwise you're breaking the law. But eventually, because the communist Chinese will infiltrate the church or they'll pay off somebody to be a Judas, they'll find out who that contact is. And when they do... Because they're in a public marketplace, they will take them and they will bind them up and they will pour gasoline on them and set them on fire in the public marketplace to discourage Christianity, to stop the organizing of religion so that all will know we're gonna find out who you are and when we find out, we're gonna kill you. One of those Chinese Christians was in America a number of years ago and he was sharing with a pastor friend of mine that story. And my pastor friend said, it must be very hard to get people to volunteer for that job. And this Chinese believer, with tears in his eyes, said, Sir, you don't understand. Our greatest day is when we get to be God's contact in the market when we are considered worthy enough to put our lives on the line for the gospel. I would submit to you that we are not that caliber of believers. Because not only do we not want to die for the gospel, Most of the membership of this church won't even live for Jesus this week because we don't want to be used of God. We want just enough religion to get us to heaven, but not enough for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant enter into all that I have for you. Let's pray together. of Hebrews chapter 11 has an interesting verse. It says men of whom the world is not worthy. You know I, I sometimes I think I'm I'm committed until I'm reminded of people who are dying for their faith. Sometimes I think I'm serious about the Lord until I read the stories of the persecuted church. Then I realize I've got a long, long, long way to go. way we'll ever be those kind of people is when we first died ourselves. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I'm afraid it's too easy. The church has never grown in times of prosperity. The church has always grown in times of persecution and adversity. Because in the fire, the dross is melted away and the real stuff comes to the surface. And in the fire, we are purified. and in times of tribulation and testing, we find out what kind of metal we are. I am very grateful tonight that I live in a country where I have the freedom to do what I do, but it doesn't make me any less responsible to be salt and light and to be bold in my faith. In fact, it gives me a greater responsibility because with freedom comes responsibility. We've got some weeks coming up where we can all come and assemble and be blessed and be happy and slap each other on the back talk about how good it is to do this movie and have Junior Hill and have Dr. Wearsby and we've got a week coming up or maybe it's time for us to run the risk of being rejected to invite somebody to come to share a good word in Jesus name